You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the visual effects team behind the ballad of Buster Scrubs, Alex Lemke and Michael Huber. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us, but not us. This'll tell the tale. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia, and today I am being joined by the visual effects team behind the Coen Brothers' latest film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Please join me in welcoming to the show Alex Lemke and Michael Huber. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Hey, good. I'm Matt. How are you? I'm doing really well. I uh, just finished up my second viewing of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This time I watched it on uh, Netflix. First time I watched it, I saw it at the New York Film Festival this year, and it's one of the most entertaining movies I think I have seen in 2018. It's been quite a bit of fun, to say the least, partially because it's six different stories, and if you don't like one story, there might be another one in there that you do like, and it has kind of something for everyone. And I imagine for you two, it provided um, a lot to work with and a lot to play with in terms of variety. So the first thing I want to start off by asking before I get to more specific questions about those individual stories is what was it like working with the Coen brothers? I, you know, they're two very, very huge figures within the industry. And I just want to know what the collaboration process was like with you two working with them. Well, um, I, I think I, I'm going to start uh, answering that question first. For me, it was my second time working with them. Um, I moved to New York seven years ago and I got super lucky by becoming VFX supervisor for Inside Loon Davis. And uh, I was working at Framestore back then. And um, so it was back then I had this, you know, oh my God, these are the Coen brothers and they're the, the best filmmakers I know and stuff like that. But when you work, when you start working with them, you see that there's a, a very humorous bunch. They keep gaggling all the time behind the video assist when they see a, a scene they've written turned into something real. So that was really great to see. And at the same time, they come really well prepared into the whole project. And it was just a, a joy working on that, even though Inside Loon David is, is not a, a big VFX film. It had 300 shots or something like that that needed something. And then they approached us early last year when they were preparing for Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And then, uh, you know, Michi and I went into the first pre-production sessions and started to break things down. What could be a visual effects? How should you approach it? Like the book, for example, we, we talked about that really early about the illustration. There's the, mm. the, the book that's uh, kind of like the combining element between everything. And I mean, the question was, is that going to be shot for real or should it be done digitally and who's going to do the illustrations and stuff like that? In the end, they shot it for real. In the end, they, they found this great artist who did these fantastic illustrations in the style of N.C. Wyeth. And um, yeah, but, but, you know, early on we were spitballing and thinking, well, would it, would it work better if we did it digitally? What would, give, would that give us in terms of control? But I think that's what they do. Like they, they, they understand filmmaking, and so whatever the the movie needs to tell the story best. So if it's a visual effect, then that's fine. But it doesn't have to be one if you can do it in camera. And so they will always they will always pick the 
you know, the, the approach that serves the story the best. And that's probably what we like best, too, because that's the same way we approach with the effects in the same way. So it was very easy to talk to and, and develop stuff together. And for me, it was the first time working with them. And I just liked a lot how they approach filmmaking. It's just a very story-based approach and that's that's what what my approach always was for for vfx too so and and so it the the, the collaboration came kind of natural it was just fun to to do so well they have a very story-based approach to a movie that is about stories mm -hmm. and the first story in the ballad of buster scruggs is also titled the ballad of buster scruggs and the one big visual effects element I noticed in this uh, segment that I want to use as a jumping off point here is the angel effect that occurs uh, in this segment. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the process behind achieving that? Because on one hand, it's cartoonish. And on another hand, it's also very lyrical and very poetic in the way that it is fully utilized here. And I imagine that there was definitely a lot of conversations in terms of what was the correct balance uh for achieving that yeah i'm i mean um what um how, how best to start i mean d despite the fact that they approached us early last year the pre-production time was still very short for us so basically we went out there shooting the background plates of tim black nelson uh, against a blue screen basically hanging in a wire rig that special effects rigged him up uh against and then we started okay we'll we'll eventually put in some form of, of wings in there. So, but we didn't have anything ready for when we were shooting that. So we were just shooting the background plates with, with Tim first and then uh, starting to create a look. And I mean, it was clear that things needed to change. Like the chaps he's wearing all the time, they have this mustard yellow color and they wanted to play with that when he becomes an angel so that the chaps would actually turn into a more neutral white color. And so these things were clear after the shoot, but it was really in post-production when we started creating the wings and then it's like, how big do we want them to be? What kind of wings should they really be? Are they big, small? So we made a lot of, you know, concepts um, to show them different sizes. And then we agreed on some for basically having the, the, the color and the shape of the feathers of more like a swan mm. wing, but, but in, in terms of size, not as big as it would be if he really had a swan wing. Uh, attached to his back and I think the other thing we also did was working with the timing of the of the flapping of the wings so that was another big thing since you know this is all three-quarter time the song they're singing at the end when a cowboy trades his birds for wings so that was clear to us that it needed the animation needed to reflect that as if you know he's being pushed up into the heaven in in the tune of the and uh, the rhythm of the of the music yeah for the segments near Al Gadones and The Girl Who Got Rattled, I imagine for both of these two stories, there had to have been extensive work done with horses and the level of violence uh, in terms of, you know, how much is CGI, how much is practical, um, how much of it is the makeup. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about your work on both um, utilizing the horses within some of those action sequences and the violence contained within? Well, it's it's uh, there are some elements that are um, in both fight scenes. Uh, it's obviously it's blood. It's um, in the in the first one near Agadonis. It's some arrow hits. 
um, especially the guy who gets the arrow through the neck and then he he breaks it off and gets another arrow through his neck and, and <laughs> a very comedic moment. <laughs> yes, and that, that was obvious. That, that this is stuff that enhancement there. It's all it's always dust enhancement because obviously when you shoot it, you don't have the same levels in the air, but it's one fight scene, so it has to the dust has to amount to a. Uh, over time and and then uh, all that stuff was yeah blood arrows stuff like this but then in um, in the Galugadrattle there is um, the whole sequence that where the where, where they attack and and the horses are supposed to step into dog holes and uh, and 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 basically break their leg and collapse and that was clear from the beginning that that was not going to happen with real horses. And uh, so we started looking into um, CG horses. And so the, the approach basically was they had a reel compiled with uh, all the CG horses they could find. And we were looking through them and, and trying to pick which ones we liked best. And then uh, we, we figured out that there were the, the horses that a company called Allura in Australia had done for the Battle of the Bastards in uh, Game of Thrones. And we all agreed that these were the coolest horses we, we we could find, and so we reached out to them and and you know tried to get them on board for the for the movie, and they yeah they were happy to do it, and so there were basically the two horse falls where the horses step into the dog holes, break their legs, fall forward. It's bit, it's the it's one in the middle of the fight, and then at the end when the chief falls off his horse. Uh, these are digital horses and uh, and made by um, by Elora. Basically, they're now method in the meantime. But and then the same horses also appear in the last story. It's not the same horses, but they're also digital horses in the last story that um, they are the ones that that hold the carriage. They are oh, also okay. digital horses. Nice. So no horses were harmed during the making of this movie. That's always absolutely not. Always really nice to hear. <laughs> Digital horses were harmed a lot. But, um, sure. The, the stunt people and animal wranglers really did a fantastic job in in making sure you know. I mean, some of the shots, like um, some of the first horse falls, were actual horse falls with real horses, but they were trained animals and was all saved. And they made sure there were enough preparations on the ground so that they, the horses wouldn't hurt themselves. There are rules how real horses are allowed to fall, and they're obviously not allowed to fall forward on their face and collapse. So that's yeah. So we it was clear that had to be digital. Yeah, no, and, and it's really, really cool. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, so when I uh, hear about that show's influence uh, in other areas of Hollywood and how, uh, from a stunt standpoint, those are being those techniques are being utilized, that's uh, always very, very exciting for me to hear. Another thing that I feel like has carried over throughout time, and I, I think a lot, I, th I thought a lot about uh, watching Forrest Gump during the meal ticket sequence because mm -hmm. okay. obviously the gold standard for uh, eliminating limbs is Gary Sinise's character in Forrest Gump. And I I'm actually mostly curious when we're looking at Harry Melling's character in that sequence who has no arms and no legs, how has the craft of you know CGIing out uh, limbs on a character evolved over time? Are you guys utilizing still the same techniques? Is there anything different that's being uh, employed today that wasn't in, you know, back in the 90s uh, such as then? Well, there's a two-way approach to this. So, Alex, a bit, well, basically, I, I can do the first half would be the real straightforward paintouts where, like, there's really no, there was no blue garments or anything involved. 
was black garments mm -hmm. uh, in order to reduce spill, uh, uh, blue spill and green spill. But basically, it's there. Yeah, it was really straightforward paint outs, and most of the scenes where he's where he's on stage was uh, made sure that we had clean plates um, for pretty much any angle. So just to make sure that there that the paint outs wouldn't be um, ridiculously. Um, uh, time-consuming, but uh, also the uh, makeup and and costume helped with it to to come up with a costume that would hide his his arms a little better, like the the, the stumps that are left basically. And uh, also on set, uh, the the chair was built so he could stand on stage actually, and his legs were going down into the stage, and that so it could be painted. Oh, so he wasn't sitting. Yeah. So so all of this helped, but then there is a whole other operation when he gets carried up the stairs in the brothel, and that's, uh, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. But but also what what's great about Joel and Ethan is that they're very economic storytellers. So they didn't include any crazy shots where it would have been super hard to paint him out or yeah. even, you know, he, he was basically always referred to as being the statue who's propped onto a chair. And that made our life easier. But working with the other departments, special effects and, and costume really helped building like the costume put in little 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 fabric things into his his pants so it would seem like there's actually a mass of of flesh that he's resting on while in fact he was just standing through a hole in the chair mm. and harry also was a fantastic performer i mean he repeated those poems uh, night after night it was freezing cold all the time and he was standing there in a <laughs> through a hole in a chair with his hands strapped to the back amazing but the two, the, the most complicated shots were when Liam Neeson carries him up the stairs uh, in a brothel and then puts him on the ground. And it was pretty clear that this had to be a head replacement. Now, but what the action actually dictated was, was a super complicated move. And at first we were just thinking about shooting him against uh, Harry's head against blue screen on a turntable or something like that. It was pretty clear that this, the, the move they de devised on set wouldn't work out for that. So we came up with this super elaborate motion control motion based setup which basically meant that harry would be strapped into his chair again on, but a, blue on a blue screen this yeah. time on a computerized motion base that would basically move him around as you know the dummy in the backpack on liam's back was actually moved up the chairs if you understand stairs. what i'm saying yeah. stairs yeah so and but unfortunately the you would have had to get such a big motion base for the for the full volume that he's traveling through that this would have been impractical so we took the translation out of the motion base and packed it into a motion control so harry was actually static on the ground on a motion base that would rotate around and then the motion control camera would pretend uh, would would make it seem like he's moving through space. Wow. And at the same time, Bruno had to adjust the lighting because he's going through all these different light sources. He passes a red, you know, light on the left-hand side of the wall and goes up to a, a clear end. And this was all animated while we were shooting it. So Harry was rotating on a chair, on a static chair. The motion control camera was moving behind him and uh, the lighting was animated. And to make things even more complicated was that the motion of the original take was so fast that if, if the motion base would have run at that speed, we would probably have broken Harry's neck. So we had, we had to shoot it at half speed and then speed it up in post. So it's a super, super complex shot. 
and um but which and, nobody would think because and, it's really just a guy yeah, being yeah. carried up some stairs and it turned into this uh, giant operation <laughs> and yeah. the shoot itself took yeah. like two hours or something like that wow but, but it was month of preparing jeez louise and month, and month of post too yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and like you said for what most people will consider just a simple shot they may yeah. not even recognize the no. uh, level of hard work that was uh, on display here with something like that that's one of these giant invisible vfx yeah. that just happen sometimes and, and to me it's also a perfect especially the second shot it's a perfect like magician's trick where you know he's putting the chair on the ground so you say okay this you know he there's no hole in the ground so he cannot put his legs through there and then you pan up and see his head and then you, you see only the back of his head and you go all right they probably just put a dummy in there but then he turns him around and you see his face and it's all close up and it's super subtle emotions and and so you might not think about it at that moment, but if you think about it later and say, hang on, how did they do that? That's that's probably always the uh, charming thing. But this is also the reason why it, it didn't end up being a head replacement, because uh, in the second and third shot where we see him, he's so close that a head replacement would have... Would have you mean a CG head? A CG head, yes, yeah. that's what I mean. So that the CG head would have uh, needed all that super subtle detail. And we all know how CG humans can turn yeah. out sometimes. So that, there was no way we were going to do this. And so we had to come up with a different idea. So Well, let's uh, let's be thankful that it was only for about 15 minutes and it didn't have to be extended out for about two and a half hours or so because <laughs> that would have been a lot more visual effect shots, oh, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I want to talk about extensions. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, location versus green screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I want to tie this into uh, Old Gold Canyon. Uh, so for that segment, Old Gold Canyon, uh, I'm, I, I got to say, Ballad of Buster Scruggs is one of the most beautiful digital films I have seen this year. And it looks absolutely incredible. So how much of that was location and how much of that was visual effects? I, I was there during the shoot and I can tell you that everything <laughs> is actually shot for real. No. Yeah, yeah that's a canyon. That's, well, it's, there's some mountains that we added. Oh, oh, yeah. true. So, that's, that's, so, oh, I, it's, uh, the the scenery is pretty much for real, but we added some mountains in the background. So. That's a gorgeous location. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the same oh location they, for, they used for the beginning of Hateful Eight, I believe. Wow, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's in Telluride, and we went there in the summertime, and there were some angles where uh, Joel want, and Ethan wanted this uh, valley to be even more isolated, so we added another mountain range, but everything else is pretty much for real what we had to do was clean up um you know all the production roads obviously because and there yeah. was a ton of trucks and generators and stuff like that standing around a lot of wide shots you know yeah. with people in the back and such and equipment i'm sure yeah. yeah but but also um continuity because we were so dependent on weather and i mean you you, you can't tell that this film is like we had seven studio days or something like that and that was it the rest was all shot outdoors and uh, so we uh, we had to really rush through, and that meant that sometimes you know you you shoot an element and use it later in the sequence, and then you had to paint out, especially his whole procedure of digging up the holes and putting in the flags and stuff like that. That that required a lot of um, f finessing in post to make it um, seem more progressive. Mm. Yeah, and probably any other signs of civilization mm -hmm. that had to be had to be uh, painted out to make sure that this is the remote place where only he exists with his donkey. Wow. What we did though now that I'm thinking about it when he climbs up the um, the tree oh, yeah. 
those were obviously, I mean, Tom Waits is, a, is an old man and you can't <laughs> expect him to actually climb up that higher tree. Yeah. <laughs> so we shot that against a blue screen, outdoor blue screen again, the owl as well, that was a real owl. And then um, we didn't really have background plates for those. So these were a combination of stuff we shot um, in, in Colorado, that the production shot in Colorado and set photography I took there and in Santa Fe near a ski slope where we were shooting part of a new ticket. And the deer? Yeah, well, the, first of all, before the deer, there were some day for night shots in there when Tom Waits goes to sleep. That's all uh, shot in daytime and then turned into night. Also, the wide shot of the valley when he sleeps is, is a day for night shot. Um, and then, yeah, the creatures. I mean, we get a. a um, it's, there's a lot of talk about the, the the owl, but the owl is real. <laughs> that's that's a, a a real cool that's owl. That's that's amazing. A great acting owl in front of a blue screen, basically most of the time. Um, uh, yeah, CG is the deer, the butterflies, and the minnows. That's these are CG creatures. And uh, well, yeah, I mean the deer. It's the whole story with the deer um, is basically that this is a nod to the uh, old Shane movie. Yeah, which has this opening sequence where where we see um, the the deer do this specific move, and through his antlers we see the kid approach. And so they wanted that move somehow similar and the, the thing is I, I don't know about deers in in in, uh, in detail but it seems like you can't really train them to do specific stuff at a specific time so in order, you can either just stand there with your camera and wait uh, uh, which they didn't want to do and it was clear that the deer had to do specific moves specific timing where, where he is in space and what he does so it was clear that this had to be a CG creature basically Gotcha. And that, that was the mill in New York yeah. who did that for us. Nice. The last segment, uh, The Mortal Remains, very dreamlike in its visual approach. I'm going to take a guess, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. I am guessing that everything outside of the carriage while they are riding in it is not real like that was shot on a stage the, that's not shot at all that's all oh. that's all digital so yeah yeah yeah. So, yeah okay so i was so i was correct yeah, coach so is was, blue yeah. screen and and the outside is digital so how did you all go about with getting the approach for the very dreamlike quality of the look of that segment because it does change from um from dusk till uh you know the evening time and it, it looks a very it just looks very surreal when you watch it because of the use of the colors mostly. That's exactly what it was supposed to be. Like it was always talk about what what is this and and I think the idea always was to have it look almost like a theater stage to like a stage play like not nothing um, it, it, so yeah surreal is probably the, the the best way to describe it in a way like unclear what it is and unclear where we are and and why we are there so that's that, that fits the story the best I guess and that was always the approach from the beginning and I think that was also a sequence where this is the first film the Coens shot digitally and this is really a, a case in point for them to do that because most of the of the actions were fully performed. So they had this long master shot from different camera angles of the full performance of of every actor, and that meant you had to have the camera running a long, long time. And then they were able to pick that out later on. And the DP Bruno Delvano, what he did was basically pre-program the lighting to start off 
the stage lighting to start off at sunset and then go into this cold uh, nighty look and then even further down in post-production he said with his color grader colorist um, peter doyle and they pushed the look even forward and added you know vignette masking power windows and and sharpening as well to make the faces stand out really and become graphical and um as you probably know this is the last story they wrote actually for that film so um we started with you know uh, ideas of what the outside could look like very early on but then towards the end of the production you know it was time was of an of an issue so at the end of the day most of these compositing shots were done by crafty apes and the exteriors were done by phosphine we uh, did the shots where the frenchman is actually leaning out of the of the carriage and looks up to the horse uh, to the coachman driving the uh, the carriage so that was basically a full digital environment outside very abstract they did we started much more photoreal at first and putting in a lot of different things but they said no no let's let's make it look like a cutout let's night of the hunter was also a big uh, reference and uh, Bertolucci's um, Conformista. There's a train sequence in there that they referenced, which is a total, clearly rear projection image, but it, that's the kind of quality they wanted to have. And then we did the stuff when they get out of the coach at the end, the, basically the, the environment, which is which was also a stage and it had to be extended in a few directions and also the CG horses had to be put in because they were not, uh, there was no way to have those real horses on that stage. So, well, we had real horses on the stage, but, but they couldn't, them, they, for, they for couldn't the run that they fast. Off, yeah, yeah. They would run straight into a wall. So yeah. that would have to be, um, yeah. So there would have to be CG horses as well. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Um, I have one last question. It, is an easy question, but it might be a hard question, but I will say that there is no right or wrong answer. Which of the six stories is your favorite in the Ballad of Buster Scrubs? I, I knew that was coming. Yeah, and uh, that you're not the first one to ask this, but it's really um, it's really hard sometimes because it changes. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. Changed. Sure. Yeah, so I, one day I do feel like I like one. It all depends on mood because yeah. they all capture a different type of mood. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, what's yours, Alex? Mine's definitely meal ticket. Yeah, okay. and, and and I'm wondering, I'm wondering because uh, when I read the reviews uh, in the US, it seems like people find this episode to be unnecessarily uh, cruel. Cruel. Yeah. Whereas if you read the German reviews of the film, <laughs> pretty much everyone loves it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. um, I, I wonder if that has to do with you know German fairy tales and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I'm not it sure. Is a mean fairy tale. Yeah, it's 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 cruel, but it's beautifully shot, and it's just one of the the stories where and I, I got sucked into that from from day one. So that was always my favorite story, and it probably will be. Uh, Meal ticket just stands out to me as as a story that is just especially the visuals. I just love how it's shot. Mm -hmm. All right, very great, excellent. I'm glad to hear that this was like I was saying in the beginning of this. Uh, uh, a project that provided a lot of variety mm -hmm. because of the different stories. And that must've been very, very fun for all of you. And of course, who doesn't get excited to work on a new Coen brothers project, especially one that in this case, like you said, uh, shot digitally, uh, which is different for them. So I'm sure it provided some different opportunities as well. 
With that said, uh, Alex, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Are you able to let anyone know about any upcoming projects that you two will be working on where they can see your work next? We are actually right now working on the the new Ang Lee movie. Oh, okay. That's exciting. Yeah, which in that crazy format, the uh, 4K 120 frames per second stereo. Yeah, so that's gonna be that's gonna occupy us for a while. I can only imagine. I'm sure that that will definitely be, <laughs> especially because I mean he he's definitely trying to push the envelope and do new techniques. So that's that must be very very exciting. And and also uh, Michi worked on Mary Poppins Returns last year, so that comes out. Yeah, in that December. comes out soon. Yeah, that's... I am seeing that on Saturday. I cannot wait. Yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> I have a. I actually have that predicted for visual effects nomination for the Oscars this year. So good luck to you, sir. We'll have to see how that all pans out. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. In any event, thank you so much, gentlemen, and thank you so much for your time. All, all right. right. Thank all you right. so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Take care. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the visual effects team behind the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is now available to stream on Netflix. You can subscribe to the Next Best Picture podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and newly on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your support. And if you head over to Patreon for $1 minimum a month, you can also get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.